Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Gary Fletcher. You know, I felt like people staring at me. They're like, there's that goddamn pervert. I know him. He loves boobies. Isn't that weird? That and more. But before that, get a load of this gorgeous song styling. Where can you find everything you need to create an exceptional website? Squarespace.com Your images to upload. With Squarespace.com, your site will look great on any device. Building state-of-the-art web pages and blogs has never been easier. So try Squarespace.com today. God, my lungs. That's right, folks. Risk is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform. Squarespace sites look professionally designed regardless of your skill level. No coding required. Easy-to-use tools, state-of-the-art technology powering your site to ensure security and stability. Squarespace is trusted by millions of people, some of the most respected brands in the world. So start your free trial site today with no credit card required at squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, use the offer code RISK, that's risk, to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace, build it beautiful. Also, how great would it be If the post office was open 24-7, better than seven dicks and a six-dick salad, my friends. No more limp dick limited hours. You could get your mailing and shipping done on your schedule. Or schedule. 
Now you can when you use stamps.com. With stamps.com, you can print postage whenever you need it right from your desk. Stamps.com will save you the time and hassle of going to the post office. No more rushing there during your busy day. Just use your goddamn computer and printer to get official U.S. postage for any letter or package. Then the cocksucking mailman picks it up. You'll save money with Stamps.com too, bird brain. You get the exact postage the instant you need it. No more overpaying. You even get special postage discounts you can't get at the post office. We use Stamps.com, dagnabbit, at risk in the story studio, and we love it. And right now you can sign up for Stamps.com and use our promo code RISK, means RISK, for this special offer. It's a four-week trial plus $110 bonus offer that includes postage and a digital scale so don't wait go to stamps.com before you do anything else click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in risk that's stamps.com enter risk dipshit now here's the show Let's begin. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share in public. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Anatech behind me now, and we are calling today's episode live from Nashville, our first time ever in the wonderful city of Nashville, Tennessee. Both my producer, JC Cassis, and myself went down to Nashville and had one heck of a time. And we're just so touched that so many people came out for the show and were so enthusiastic. A lot of people, again, traveled from cities far away. I think someone said they drove seven hours. We also heard a lot of music and ate a lot of horrible food. I mean, tasty food, but, you know, bad for ya. We did a Facebook Live. When we got stuck, we got stuck an extra entire day in Nashville because of plane trouble, which seems, I I swear, I travel so much now and are planes ever not delayed? But we want to do more of those Facebook Live thingamabibbles, so make sure and check us out on Twitter and Facebook at Risk Show because you can chat with us in real time, get answers to questions right there when you're asking them and you know we'll be making announcements on twitter and facebook about when we think we'll be doing that next now in a little bit we're going to hear a wonderful story from laura wimbles who was a fan of the show she is a photographer based in cleveland actually she has a book called faces of cleveland that you can find out more about at facesofcle.com But before that, 
someone we're so excited to be featuring on the show. When we put the call out that we were coming to Nashville, a comedian named Bob Clark reached out to us and he said, listen, there's this guy who washes dishes at this restaurant and where we happen to do an open mic, a stand-up comedy open mic, and we once invited him out of the dish room to come out and try telling a little story on stage. His name is Malcolm Anderson. Bob said, now look, he is not a polished performer. He doesn't have a lot of experience. He's had a really, really hard life. He's had to struggle with some of the biggest kinds of struggles. But Bob said, I think you should really have him on to tell this story about his experience in prison. Well, lo and behold, we did get in contact with Malcolm Anderson, but it turned out he was back in prison. (laughs) So Bob kept in touch with us and kept in touch with Malcolm, and it turned out Malcolm was being released from prison again one day before the Risk show. So we were like, we booked him on the show just kind of crossing, taking a risk crossing our fingers hoping he will indeed be back out and ready to go and uh, this is what happened this is the story that Malcolm shared we're going to start with it we really do hope that Malcolm is able to get on his feet as best as possible and you know what keep getting up on stage and telling these stories because he is a treat to listen to here he is now At the Risk Live show in Nashville, Tennessee, it's Malcolm Anderson with a story we call Big Rose. everybody doing? Y'all all right? Okay, so uh, as you can tell, I was in the penitentiary. <laughs> so uh, I get down to the penitentiary and I'm flabbergasted. Because when I look around, I go to the place in Henning, Tennessee called West High, what they call classification. And this is where they determine where you would do your time at. I get down there, I look around, I'm thinking, man, conservative white folks gonna be pissed like a motherfucker. Look at this shit. And they got manicured lawns and brand new buildings and, and a nice library and cafeteria. So it's not like I think the penitentiary would be, you know, big dudes trying to mess with you or trying to beat you up. I'm like, man, this is kind of like college for really poor people or something. Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what I mean? So I'm getting adjusted and we in classification. We can go to classification is because you have to go through the doctor. So you're healthy enough to get with the other inmates. I'm a little pissed off about that. I actually got to have a physical examination and run around with convicts. Damn, that's kind of tight. So anyway. We go through, get everything done, so I'm still in classification. Once you leave classification, you go to where you're going to do your time at. So I see this guy, 
cutting hair outside, and he's got a a comb with a razor blade inside of it. And he's cutting everybody's hair, and he's doing a nice job. I get to do with his props. He's doing a nice job. So I'm thinking, you know, I give you a little cut. I like to be tight. So I step to dude and say, hey, man, uh, what the business is? So he tell me what he charged. So I said, I'll be here tomorrow with your box of cakes. You cut me up. So I come out, <laughs> box of cakes, you know, little Debbie's go a long way in the penitentiary. Don't, don't play no game, man. Don't play around with little Debbie, man. You can get some shit done with little Debbie's. <laughs> so anyway, uh, I come back, give him the box of cakes. He cut me up. Then he takes the razor blade out the comb and lines me up, you know. Like, damn, this is tighter than fish pussy. Dude, is tight with his shit. You know, he tight with his shit. So, uh, anyway, uh, just when I get to looking all good and everything, they call me up. Anderson, pack your shit. You're going to site two. Okay, so I go to site two. I got this huge-ass plastic container we put all your stuff in. Come get to the penitentiary, everything is brand new. Five pair of socks, five pair of T-shirts. Underwear, jeans, the whole nine. Everything brand new. So got this big ass container that you take everything in. So I come in, I'm pushing my little container. And I get there and the guy says, Anderson, upstairs, first door to your right. Thank you, officer. So I get my little junk, I'm coming up. And I get to the top of the steps. There is a guy standing there, about six foot four, with a long t-shirt about <laughs> down to his knees and I'm thinking where the fuck you get a six foot six foot four inch t-shirt in this damn penitentiary here what the fuck but anyway he's got on now I know this is an all male penitentiary cause I checked out when I came in it's all male but he got on red Kool-Aid on each cheek I guess for blush he got on the little stuff for the eyes. He got that red Kool-Aid and he got on his lips. And he's got a ponytail pulled back with a little red bow on it. I'm thinking, oh, shit. Damn. But of course, you know, don't want to call no trouble, so you don't want to stay at dude. So I kind of, you know, go past dude real easy like. And, and as soon as I get past him, he says, mm. Now, that's a fine motherfucker right there. <laughs> so, you know, really ain't trying to look now, you know. Really, they got eyes forward, straight up here. So I go get the rest of my stuff, and I move in. Now, my room I move into, it's got a blue light. Dude is playing Thelonious Monk. I'm a jamming. Who the fuck is playing Thelonious Monk in the pen? Got incense, smelling good. Got a little throw rug in the front. And we got TV with remote control and cable with Showtime for $3 a month. Man, white folk gonna be pissed when they find out what the fuck we doing up here in the penitentiary. They don't have no idea. And we just fucking kicking it this bitch. Time pass on, and my cell, he's a real cool guy named Johnny. He comes to me one Saturday night and says to me, they call me Mac. He said, Mac, man, oh, you know I go to the gambling house, and I be gambling all the time. I said, yeah, I know. He said, well, Big Rose, that's the six foot four dude with t-shirt on. 
runs the gambling house. And Big Rose talks about you all the time. Man, I ain't never said nothing to Big Rose. She don't even know me, yo. He don't even know me. You know what I'm saying? He's, I understand, but I'm telling you that. Well, Sally, man, I got to be honest, man. Dude gonna holler at you. <laughs> holler at me about what? <laughs> Shit, nigga, you know what he gonna holler at your ass about? You already know. Hold <laughs> on, man. Well, you can tell Big Rose for me that I don't get down. Like, that. ain't nothing shaking. Like, well, I got to tell you something about Big Roe. Well, what? <laughs> Big Roe been in here 17 years and been involved in incidents six times. And Big Roe would like it when you resist. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm going to resist. There's going to be some furniture moving. There's going to be some resistance. You can believe that shit. There ain't nothing. So he said, look, man, you're a good side dude. Why don't you come work out with us? Put a little muscle on. It might, you know, this is the penitentiary, and, you know, I hate to tell you, man, but size does matter in the penitentiary. You know, get a little muscle on you, beef up a little bit. It might get dude a second thought, might give him some pause before he step to you. Okay, sound like a plan. I said, well, wait a minute, man. Y'all work out with folks called Psycho Dirty Flint. Y'all trying to kill folks. He's no, we'll keep you tight. So I go work out. The time pass on, I start getting a little swole. Getting a little buffed up, you know, walking around, you know, not saying excuse me to folks no more, you know, saying move instead of excuse me. <laughs> so time passed on. I've been working on about six weeks. I'm benching over 250 pounds. I'm looking King Kong around here. So uh, what you want to do? All of a sudden, it was a Sunday night. Monday morning came. My cellie's gone to work. Now, in the penitentiary, you got to understand that another thing that's going to piss white folks off, you got your own key to your room. It's like a, you know, it's like a ghetto apartment. You got your own key to your own room. You got a little button inside your room that you push, and that's how you get out. And when you come in, use the key. But if you're in there for a county, you lock down, the button don't work. But the rest of the time, the button works. So I'm in there watching the Maury show. Now I'm watching, hold on, I'm watching the old Maury show. Not the baby, you are the baby's father show, not that one. Back when Maury had, I just had me watching this show about could you tell if the guy was born a guy or a girl. You remember when Maury doing that? Okay, so I'm watching that show of all the damn shows on God's green earth, and I got cable to boot, and I'm watching Maury, and I got cable. Should have been on Showtime or some shit, but anyway, I'm watching Maury's show. Oh. Uh, Next thing I know, there's a <laughs> at the door. I look up, oh shit, it's Big Rose <laughs> with the t-shirt on. But this time, instead of the red shit, she got the green shit on. I guess green mean go. <laughs> so I'm like, oh shit. So I think about it, I say, you know what, man, I'm going to have to face this shit sooner or later, so... Here goes nothing. So I grab a little ink pen, you know, for protection. <laughs> Slide in my boot. You know, hey, I, I, it's gonna be some resistance, for real. You know, I would not go quietly into that good night. So, uh, <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> I buzz the door, big road there. She says, how you doing? That's how she talked. How you doing? I said, I'm good. What's up with you? 
Can I come talk to you? I said, hold on. So I buzz the door. Big Road come in. And she stands by the door with her hands behind her back, you know, kind of posted up. So I'm, I'm about six feet away from her, so, you know, good distance. Got to run and start anything, pop off. <laughs> you know, you got you to, logistic and demographics are important in situations like this, so. And so she says, uh, well, I see you been working out and everything. I said, yeah, you know, working out with Johnny and Psycho Nim, you know, trying to get swole up, whatever. She said, well, it look good. I said, well, thank you. Thank you very much. And then she kind of gets to the point. She said, well, uh, you seem still stressed out. I said, well, shit, I'm in the penitentiary. It's kind of a, <laughs> I'm a stressful environment, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I grew up in the suburbs. They ain't used to these many brothers, you know what I mean? So <laughs> it's a little stressful. So she says, well, you know what's a good cure for all this stress? I said, I think a good cure for all this stress is getting the fuck out of here. Probably be a good way to start being unstressed. She says, uh, a good cure for all this stress is a good old blowjob. I said, okay. I plead it. And uh, I'll make sure when I get out, I get one. I appreciate, you know. She said, you know, you come, you know, keep it real with me. And she says, oh no, honey, you ain't gotta wait that long. I can take care of you right now. Okay, uh, uh, Mr. Rose, Lady Rose, Big Rose, uh, Rose, whatever your name is. Uh, let me tell you something. Um, you, 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 you be you, and I'm gonna be me, and we're gonna get along just fine. But that's not. How I get down, you know what I'm saying? That's not my thing. So, uh, thanks for the offer. I appreciate it. <laughs> appreciate the, you know, the extension of hospitality. It shows a southern charm. <laughs> but, uh, no, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good on all that thing. I'm, I'm, I'm cool till I, I get I'm good. I'm, I'm cool on that. So, what I had noticed was why Big Rove was talking to me. He had moved up within arm's reach of me. And I really hadn't paid attention because he's back and forth with the hands and the talking and the head movement and everything. So I'm kind of like, you know, really semi-amused that this big-ass dude is trying to basically give me a blowjob. <laughs> so, you know, first time for everything, but not this time, okay? So anyway, um, so when I tell him, I say, you know, I preached off of everything, I'm good. He... He kind of stepped me, he said, so, uh, so you turning me down? I said, yeah, you know, I, I got to turn it down that day. I can't, I can't do nothing with that day. I can't do nothing with all that day. So are you telling me no? I said, yeah, I'm, I'm telling you no. And as quick as you could do that, his voice dropped, his body language changed, his whole demeanor changed. And he stepped right into me, I mean, up in my face and said, well, what if I don't want to hear no? And he was real deep voiced. It didn't sound like the person I just kept talking to. He just changed on me like, what if I don't want to hear no? Okay. We ain't laughing now. This is, this is for real. Dude, it's for real telling me, you know, we can do some Shawshank Redemption up in here. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I'm ready for him. Remember my little ink pen? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I ain't playing. Yeah, you got me fucked up with somebody else. 
So I'm ready for it. Me and my infamous gonna wear your ass out today. You got me confused with some whole other body. So instead of me jumping back or bagging back, I stepped right to him. And I meant to give him the business. Let him know what time it was. You got the wrong guy. I ain't scared of you, and I ain't going nowhere, but you ain't gonna do nothing to me. So instead of saying, or I meant to say, what I meant to say was, because he's a black guy, I'm a black guy, I meant to say, well, you can make a motherfucking move then, goddamn it, do something. <laughs> but you ever have one of them situations where it don't go the way you're playing? Yeah, I don't know, man, I don't know. I don't know. I was, I was down, I was ready, I had my ink pen, I was on the business. And instead, it came out like this. We'll make a movie! <laughs> I swear, I swear on cheese and crackers, this <laughs> thing came out. And shit, when I, he kind of jumped back and looked at me like, damn, who the bitch here? <laughs> and I don't know. But me saying it like that, it threw him for a loop. And he kind of looked at me and he said, uh, he kind of calmed down, his body language changed. He said, uh, well, you know, I run the store. Now, the store is like when you got stuff in your room and everybody else is out, they call it the store. So, well, you know, I run the store, and it's usually two for one. But for you, I do one for one. I got to go now, toodles and waved at me and pushed a little button and walked on out and uh, I kind of stood there and I went outside after he had left and looked over the balcony and of course everybody was looking up at my room like, you know, what's going down? But after that, me and Big Rose never talked again. But it was the craziest thing because I think by me responding that way, probably saved my life. Well, save me some more time. Thank y'all. The train a coming, it's rolling around a bend, and I ain't seen the sunshine since I don't know when. I'm stuck in Folsom Prison, and time keeps dragging on. But that train keeps a rolling on down to San Antonio. When I was just a baby, my mama told me, son. Always be a good boy, don't ever play with guns But I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die When I hear that whistle blowing, I hang my head and cry So my mom and I are sitting across from each other at a diner. It's Thanksgiving Day, and my father, who I haven't seen or talked to in 13 years, has just walked in and unknowingly sat down 10 feet away from us. My mom turns to me, eyes wide, and says, holy shit, should we leave? Now growing up, all I wanted more than anything in the world was to be a white girl. I wanted blonde hair, blue eyes, creamy porcelain skin. And every day that I woke up and looked down at my brown skin, I would just 
have the same realization, God damn it, still Hispanic. I was adopted into a white family when I was two months old. And we lived in Berea, Ohio, which is 15 minutes outside of Cleveland, just far enough to make it all white. I was always the brownest person anywhere that we went. I was very used to, from a young age, looking differently than everyone. And the kids at school noticed. I was not an attractive child. My mom kept my hair very short. I essentially looked like a miniature Aziz Ansari. Um, <laughs> mustache and all. Um, so the white kids at school, they just saw a brown person who didn't look anything like them. So I was called a spick. I was called a beaner. I was called a nigger. I was called a wetback. Anything you could think of, they just threw it at me. I wish that I could say my home life was a little bit better, but it wasn't. Um, my mother was the most caring, supportive person in the world. She just wanted to give love and loved to love. But my father was completely different. He was this just large, hulking man of negativity. And the relationship between my father and my mother was essentially non-existent. I never actually physically saw them touch, not once. One of my earliest memories is actually with my father, and I'm about four years old, and we're at a restaurant, and I'm doing something that is totally normal for a four-year-old. I'm eating fries, and after I eat one of the fries, I lick my fingers. And in one white, hot flash of searing pain, he had taken his large ham hand and just cracked me straight across the face and pointed at me and said, don't you dare lick your fingers. We're not that poor. Well, then why are we at Denny's? <laughs> Regardless, though, if he wasn't hitting me for just inane, innocent things, he was regarding me with disdain. If we would run into coworkers of his, they could immediately tell that we looked very different, and they would say, oh, who is this? And he would just kind of look at me with side eye and be like, oh, this is my adopted daughter. I always had to point out that I was adopted. My mom, she, even though I didn't want to be a Hispanic child and I hated the skin that I was in, she tried to help me with cultural identity. And when I was about seven years old, she took me to the Puerto Rican Day Parade, which was a huge mistake because I still had it in my head that I wanted to be Punky Brewster. And we're at this Puerto Rican Day Parade and there's music and there's dancing and there's costumes and I just had a complete and total, total meltdown. I started screaming, I don't know why we're here. I'm not Hispanic. I'm not like these people. This music is too loud and the food stinks and I'm just screaming. So my mom just places her hand gently over my mouth and drags me away from this scene of staring Hispanic people. Um, we never went back to another Puerto Rican Day Parade. Thankfully, though, my parents got divorced around that same time when I was about eight or nine years old. And once my father was out of the house, I didn't have to live in that tension, that just unsettling feeling of discomfort in your own home. But we were supposed to have these weekly court-ordered visits where he would come and pick me up every Saturday at noon. And I would just build these fantasies up in my head about things that we could do together, things that would maybe make him want to be around me and want to see me the way that I just should have been seen by him, the person who was supposed to be my father. And so I would imagine us going bowling or just anything, anything fun. And noon would come and noon would go. And I would be sitting on the couch with bated breath waiting for him. And then one o'clock would come and then two o'clock. And eventually, maybe around four or five, he'd show up in whatever least sports car he had at the time with no apology, no reason why he was late. We'd maybe go get a quick bite to eat, stop at a hardware store, and then I'd be back at home in less than two hours. Anything that I had built up in my head 
it just never happened. Now, when you don't put any effort into anything, relationships or otherwise, it just atrophies. And so we, by the time I graduated high school, we were maybe seeing each other once or twice a year. My freshman year in college, he called one day out of the blue and said he had gotten a new car and did I want to go grab lunch? And I was like, kind of apprehensive, but I said, sure, why not? So he picks me up. I'm in the car with him maybe 10 minutes and we're at an intersection downtown and there was one of those guys with the squeegee and the spray bottle and the dirty rag and he comes up to my dad's windshield and starts washing it and my dad flips out and he's like, get the fuck off of my car, get the fuck off of my windshield and starts to roll his window up and then shakes his head and says, Jesus Christ, these fucking spicks are everywhere. Yeah, asshole, they are everywhere, including sitting next to you in your car, your own daughter, who is also a spick. And in that moment, I didn't care what he had had planned for the day. I didn't care about trying to force some conversation out of him. I could not stand to be in that car one second longer. So I got out in the middle of the street, slammed the door, and walked away without looking back. I didn't look back at him, and he didn't come after me. He didn't call after me. He didn't chase after me. And that was when I was 19, and I never saw him again. I became a photographer in my 20s and started shooting weddings. And I would see these fathers and daughters together at weddings having these, you know, close dances where they're crying and clutching each other. And I never really understood that, you know, like, oh, this is my little princess that I'm giving away on her wedding day. But there was one wedding where I'm shooting this father and daughter, and I've watched them interact together all day. They weren't the sappy, normal father, daughter, daddy, princess thing. They were laughing and enjoying each other's company. They were actually friends. And then while I'm shooting them during the father and daughter dance, as they're laughing, something cracked inside of me. That cold slab of my black heart that had just been emotionally dead broke open, and I burst into tears. I started crying like an asshole behind my camera as I'm shooting these people <laughs> and trying not to let on that the wedding photographer has completely lost her shit. But it was in that moment I realized I was never going to have that. I was never going to have that dancing partner. It just wasn't going to happen for me. Also, in my 20s, even though I never saw my father, I still felt like I saw him everywhere particularly in the men that I dated, which is probably very shocking, I know. Um, I found myself in this relationship, this eight-year relationship with this guy who I just desperately sought his approval. From day one, it was pretty clear he was not really that interested in me, but as soon as I saw that, I was like, oh, challenge accepted. Player two has joined the game. Like, I, I know how to work this. Um, I will make him, I will make him see me. Um, so we were together eight years. He was very critical of my weight. He was never interested in having sex either. And one day he let out that the reason he wasn't interested in having sex is because he wasn't that attracted to me and that I should lose the gut and we'll talk. Exact words. Instead of leaving him like a normal person would, I just developed a rampant eating disorder because, frankly, it seemed a lot easier and cheaper than moving out. Um, so I, I, lost, I lost about 45 pounds, and I got down to that elusive size zero that 
we all save up for, you know. And throughout the whole time we were together, he had always made it a point to tell me he never wanted to get married. So when he proposed out of nowhere, I was like, oh, oh my God, I did it. I, I finally cracked him. He actually sees me for, you know, being worthy. And about a week before the wedding was to take place, he came home one day and he looked at me and he's like, oh my God, look at your legs. They're so skinny. It's disgusting. So I had gone through all of that. I ran myself ragged, starved myself, and it still wasn't enough. So I, I was like, you know what? This is, I, I can't marry this person. And I tried to break up with him. He refused. He said, you can't walk away from me now. Everyone's eyes are on us. Let's just get married, and then if you still hate me in a month, we'll get a divorce when no one cares anymore. <laughs> so I felt trapped, and I did what any girl would do in that situation. I called my mom, and I said, Mom, I cannot marry this guy. I don't know what to do. And she said three words that changed my life. She said, then you won't. So on a beautiful day in October, five days before the wedding was to take place, I called the whole thing off. Now... So Thanksgiving was looming around the corner and my mom herself had just gotten out of a 12-year relationship. So both of us, she decided that year that she wasn't going to do the Thanksgiving. She was just she didn't want to cook. She told me, "Let's find a restaurant. We'll just go and have someone else do the work for once and you know, we've, had, we've, we've both had a shit year, so let's just relax a little bit. So I find this diner in Cleveland that's serving Thanksgiving dinner, and we go there. And it's back to how it was when I was growing up. It's just the two of us. We're laughing. We're, we're reveling in this moment of, you know, realizing where else we would be if we hadn't had these major life changes that we had gone through this year. And after we placed our food order, that's when I saw my dad walk in through the door, never looked at us, but he walked in and sat down 10 feet away from where we were sitting. And I just start involuntarily shaking, um, kind of like that scene in Jurassic Park where the girl has the jello when she sees the velociraptor rounding the corner. And I'm just like... And my mom's like, what? What's wrong? I'm like, you don't need to, you don't need to turn around. It's fine. Don't, don't. And she's like, of course, she turns around. And she's like, oh, shit should we leave? And I'm like, well, we haven't even gotten our food yet. Like, why, <laughs> why would we let him ruin Thanksgiving too? You know, but just as quick as that shock and horror had come on at seeing him, it was gone again because he was no different than anyone else sitting in that restaurant. He didn't know what I was thinking. He hadn't cared to know what I was thinking the past 13 years. He didn't even know I was there. He was a stranger just like everyone else, except he and I shared a same last name. That was it. Throughout my adult life, I had quietly mourned that, oh, you know, I didn't have this, this rock, this father figure that I thought I had to have this, this dancing partner. I would never have that, but it didn't matter because I'd been leading myself this whole time, and I'm just fine. your land This land is my land 
This is Risk. This is Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings behind me now. And we just heard from Laura Wimbles. Before that, we heard some Johnny Cash. Uh, JC and I went to visit the Johnny Cash Museum in Nashville when we were there. And that recording, if you don't know it, was recorded at Folsom Prison. And it's a reminder that we at Risk have always dreamed of doing a show at a prison with the prisoners, you know, helping them to share, get up in front of the other prisoners and share their stories. So if you happen to work in a system like that or know anyone who does, get in contact with us. And speaking of JC, here she is with a little bit of a message of her own. Hey, folks, this is JC Cassis here to tell you about Mod Cloth, the way Kevin Allison would if he were a woman. ModCloth is your go-to spot for fashion as unique as you. They feature a broad range of styles from the understated to the adventurous to the classic to the contemporary, the retro to the rank now. At ModCloth, you'll find anything but ordinary dresses, tops, bottoms, mm, that's me, shoes, bridal styles, outerwear, and home decor. Their statement prints, bold colors, distinctive designs, and vintage-inspired looks add uncommon and unexpected flavor to every moment in your day. Use their free mod stylist service for dedicated one-on-one sizing and fit tips and personal styling support. Right now, you can shop their latest collection and find your new fall favorites. Go to M-O-D-C-L-O-T-H dot com and enter promo code RASK at checkout to get $20 off an order of $100 or more. Make every day extraordinary with Mod Cloth. Okay, let's get back to the show, folks. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear from comedian Gary Fletcher. But before that, this beautiful story that was told by Brenda Leonard... You can find Brenda at brendaleonard.com. That's spelled L-E-N-A-R-D. And here she is now with a story we call The Beginning and the Ending. My cell phone started to ring, and I thought that that was a little unusual considering this was a brand new cell phone, and only two or three people had had this number. So when the cell phone rang, they said, hello, is this Brenda Leonard? I responded, I said, yes, this is Brenda. I said, who is this? So the gentleman on the other end of the phone said, please stop whatever you're doing and come right now to your babysitters. So I'm thinking that maybe this is some kind of joke. Somebody is trying to play some silly little joke. And I'm demanding some answers. I said, well, who is this? And what's going on? What happened to my baby? He didn't provide any information. He simply said, stop whatever you're doing and come now to the babysitter's house. 
So at the time I was in the store with my then husband, he asked, who was that who called? I said, I can't make heads or tails out of what he said his name was. The only thing he said was, stop whatever you're doing and come now. So I'm going to get out of here and drive over to Mrs. Wright's house right now and see what's going on. He said, well, do you want me to come with you? I said, no, surely it cannot be anything. So I'm going to go pick up the baby, and I'll see you back at the house. He said, okay, fine. So I hurried up, got out of the store, made my purchase, and then I got in the car. And immediately, I then called my mother. I said, mother, I'm not trying to alarm you about anything, but I just got a weird phone call. And I was told, come to Ms. Wright's house right now. They didn't provide any other information. They didn't give me any other details about what's going on. They simply said, come now. So my mother said, well, should I meet you over there? I said, no, surely it, it, it can't be anything wrong. I, I don't know. But I'm on my way there now. She said, well, keep me posted. I said, I'll call you as soon as I get there, and I'll let you know exactly what happened. So as I'm driving to my babysitter's house, I have to admit, I had prayed a very selfish prayer. And that prayer was, Lord, whatever the problem is, please don't let it be the baby. And that may sound selfish because this was a newborn baby, a six-month-old baby. And my sitter had lived her life. She was a grandmother. She'd been married. She had children. So I said, whatever the problem is, just don't let it be the baby. So I'm driving as fast as I can, keeping within the speed limit, of course, to get to the babysitter's house. And when I arrived, the scene was very grim. I saw the medical examiner's van was there. So I knew somebody was dead, but I didn't know who yet. And on both sides of the condominium complex, I saw people wiping their eyes, crying. I even saw DeKalb County's finest police officers wiping their eyes. That said, whatever I'm about to face, it's surely tragic. And it may not be an old lady that these people are crying about. I parked my car and I got out of the car. And a gentleman walked up to me and said, are you Brenda Leonard? For a moment there, like a bird, I just wanted to fly away. I just, I just wanted to leave. Reluctantly, I said, I am Brenda Leonard. He took my hand and he said to me, lips trembling, he held my hand gently. And the only thing he c c c could say was, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, but your baby is dead. I said, oh, no. No, 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 no. No, God, no, no, not this. Not this. This cannot be true. No, 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 this cannot be true. 
So then I asked, did my babysitter kill my baby? We had known her forever. She was a part of the family. She had taken care of my other children. She had cared for me when I was pregnant. We loved Miss Wright. She was like part of the family. So I, I, I was puzzled. I was confused. I was hurt. I was angry. I was sad. I was a whole plethora of emotions. I said, could she have killed my baby? He said, no. It was sudden infant death syndrome. Since, I, I, for a moment, I, I couldn't even register what he said. He said, it's known as crib death. It's what happens is, when you put newborn babies to sleep, they simply never wake up. He said it was peaceful. There was no trauma. He said we did a thorough investigation, and we found no fault in her care. In fact, there was no stress, no trauma, no suffering with this infant baby. It was a peaceful departure. So I asked him, can I please see Daniel one last time? And he pleaded with me. He said, please remember Daniel the last time you saw him. So I started to think back to that morning, which was the last time I saw him. When I woke up that morning, it was like any other normal morning if you have four small children running around the house. It is pandemonium trying to get everybody dressed and out of the house with two shoes on, two socks on, and everybody is dressed. So that was my typical morning getting my little ones ready, getting myself ready, and of course the baby. But something about that morning felt so different. But I, I couldn't put my finger on what is so different about this morning? What is so different about this day? So as I was getting everybody out of the house and into the car, I started just to double check, triple check, make sure I wasn't forgetting anything because something inside of me said something feels different. I don't know what it is. I made sure I had keys, purse, diaper bag, baby bag, toys, baby food, everything. But something was different. So as I dropped off the little ones, I'm then not driving to the babysitters with Daniel. I get to her house, I park the car, I get him out, and I place the car carrier right here on the floor, on the concrete. And then I'm in the car getting toys and shoes and socks and things that had fallen. And as I turned around to pick up the carrier, his eyes were glued on me. I paused for a moment. And I said, what, what, what are you trying to tell me? What are you saying? What, what, what are you trying to tell me? Something is wrong and I didn't know what it was that morning. So as I, as I took him out of the carrier, I picked him up and I held him. And his hand started to embrace my cheek. And I said, what, what, are, what are you saying? I can't figure it out, but what are you telling me? So as I get closer to Mrs. Wright's door, I tell her, Miss Wright, I don't know what's wrong, but, but 
Maybe I should just cancel the day and go back home with Daniel and just spend the day with him. I, I don't know. I, I just feel like something is weird, but I can't figure it out. She said, girl, give me that baby and get your overreacting. There isn't anything wrong. I said, I don't know. I just, I don't know. Something just doesn't feel right. So we just went down the list and we started chatting about the things of the day. And I took Daniel one last time and I held him so close to my heart and I kissed him and he rubbed his fingers across my cheek as if he was saying, Mommy, goodbye. And I turned him over to Miss Wright. And I embraced her and I said, I'll see you later. She said goodbye. And I left for the day. So when he told me, please remember him the last time you saw him, that's what I remember. I remember holding him so close. I remember his hands touching my cheek. I remember kissing him. I remember the sun being bright, the sky being blue. It was such a beautiful day. That's what I remembered. So as I'm continuing talking about what happened in the series of events that happened with Miss Wright. Immediately out of her condo, I saw a man with a small bundle wrapped in Daniel's blanket. And he put the infant in the medical examiner's van. And I asked, is that my baby? Is that my baby? He said, yes. And I knew then it was the end and it was the beginning of a whole new life for me. Thank you so much. One grain of sand. One grain of sand in an old world One grain of sand One little boy One little girl One grain of sand one drop of water in the deep blue sea. One grain of sand. One little you. One little me. Back in 1999, I uh, sat in church the way I did pretty much every Sunday. And I remember looking around 
And noticing that everybody looked the same, everybody dressed the same, everybody talked the same, everybody pretty much believed the same thing. You know, all the men had short buzz cuts and wore suits. All the women had long hair and wore dresses. All the kids were homeschooled, and they all sat there very well behaved as the pastor spoke. I remember looking at the pastor, and he stood on stage behind the pulpit. He was a tall Italian man, charismatic, from New York. And we, we hung out on to pretty much every single word that he said. I remember he looked at us and he said, the world is coming to an end. The millennium bug is going to cause all the computers to be reset to the 1900s, and we're going to suffer. Y2K is going to be the beginning of the end, and we're going down. But here's the thing. He told us, he said, I'm going to keep you safe. God's going to keep you safe. We're going to gather food. We're going to gather water. We're going to gather guns and ammunition. <laughs> Whatever it takes. Because God is almighty. And God will protect you. And I will protect you. The funny thing is, as he said all this stuff, I was like, I don't feel fucking safe. <laughs> this sucks. This sounds really bad. Because I was a 14-year-old boy. My life was just beginning, you know. And I was like, it's going to be coming to an end before it even starts. And the funny thing is, all I cared about, even with facing Armageddon, was just all I wanted to do was see a pair of boobs. <laughs> that was it. That was it. After the service, me and my friends, we went outside. And we would a lot of times dig through this dumpster that was, uh, belonged to the computer repair shop that was next to our church. A lot of times we just found like laptops and CDs and things like that. But this day in particular, I found the holy grail of pornography for a 14-year-old boy who didn't have the cable, the cable, <laughs> or the internet. I found a pristine Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition. Mm. It was beautiful, and it was mint condition too, all except for like a tomato that was stuck to the cover of it. But I knew that it had to be mine. So I wiped the tomato off of Tyra Banks's breasts. I took the magazine, pulled up my pant leg, stuck the magazine in my sock, then pushed the pant leg down over the magazine. Got it to my car, got it home that night, and me and Tyra Banks and her beautiful friends had a wonderful evening together. <laughs> that next morning, I got up to do my chores the way I always did. I started to head down the stairs, and uh, typically I would smell the, the smell of chicken manure in the air because our house was attached to a chicken coop, but this time I smelled a little bit of blood, and I knew that something was up. So I walk into the basement, and I see Brother Paxton standing there. Brother Paxton, he was a deacon in our church, and we also lived on his property with a few of the other families. And he was an old man with a leathery face, wrinkles, overalls. 
And I saw him standing there with his bloody knife. And behind him was just rows and rows of the chickens that I had been taking care of for several months. They were hanging from the ceiling. They had blood coming out of their mouths. Some were alive, most were dead. And I think Brother Paxton could see that it bothered me. He could see the pain in my face. So he looked at me and he was like, all right, look, Gary, let's go outside. I go outside, sit down on his tractor, and he looks at me and he says, look, I know what you saw in there is really difficult to see. I know it's really painful. But you have to understand that life is going to change for you. The end of the world is coming, and you're going to have to deal with this. And he said to me, as a 14-year-old boy, he goes, you have to be okay with a little bit of death if you want to live. Now, again, I don't know if he was trying to comfort me because it didn't work. Uh, I felt really horrible. I was like, well, God, this just, everything sucks. God's going to be judging the world, and I'm going to be part of it because I've got sin in my heart. I've got Tyra Banks up under my bed right now, and she's stored with all the food and water that me and my family are going to be living off of. So I went to bed that night. I got up the next morning, and I knew that I had to get rid of this magazine. I had to get rid of this sin in my heart before God just <laughs> shut the internet down. <laughs> God hates the World Wide Web, you know? <laughs> so I go outside, I uh, take the magazine, I throw it onto our charcoal grill, and I set Tyra Banks on fire. <laughs> and I remember just seeing her ashes and fumes just going up to my God in heaven as a sacrifice to him. <laughs> and I, I started to feel relieved, honestly. But then I heard a slow rumble. It was Brother Bill's goddamn tractor <laughs> just coming up the driveway. He saw the smoke and assumed there was a fire, and he was right. Um, wasn't cooking hot dogs this time. It was just softcore pornography, you know. He came up to me and he asked me what was going on, and I had no choice but to tell the truth. I was like, I'm not going to stack sin on sin. I'm not going to go to double hell for this shit. <laughs> so I told him the truth, and he's like, okay, here's what we're going to do. As soon as your mom gets home from work, I'm going to talk to her, and we're going to figure out what your punishment is. And I was like, sounds great. End of the world isn't bad enough, let's add something else to it. <laughs> My mom gets home, they talk it over, and decide what, what should go on. She comes up to me and she says, Okay, Gary, I, I appreciate that you told the truth and that you turned away from your sin before you even got caught. But here's what we need you to do. This Sunday, you're going to go up in front of the entire church... <laughs> And tell them exactly what you did, word for word. You're going to tell them about the magazine. You're going to tell them about Tyre Banks. You're going to tell them all about your dick. <laughs> and 
And my mom, she didn't say dick. I just want to, you know. So, I go to bed that night, and I, I mean, when she said that to me, I had never cussed before, but the thought through my mind was just, fuck this shit. <laughs> just a big no way, Jose, you know? <laughs> so I go to bed, and I was like, you know what, I'm gonna pray. So I prayed. I said, Lord, I, I don't even know if you're listening. I don't even know if you pay attention to me half the time. But if you could just do me one solid, don't make me go in front of these people and talk about my penis on Sunday morning. Could you spare me of this apocalypse, please? And also, just spare me of the, the whole big apocalypse. That'd be cool, too, if you could maybe work that out. I finished my prayer, went to sleep. I go to church the next Sunday morning, the way I did every single Sunday morning. And I'm sitting there, and I, I feel like people knew what was up. You know, I felt like people staring at me. They're like, there's that goddamn pervert. I know him. He loves boobies. Isn't that weird? While these thoughts are racing through my mind, I see my mom just get pulled into the pastor's office. And I'm like, oh shit, they're going to try to figure out when I'm supposed to go up and tell my story. Is it going to be after the offering or before we sing Bringing in the Sheaves? <laughs> then she comes out and she's just got tears running down her face. And I was like, God, I knew she was upset, but Jesus, this is a little much. She comes up to me, she grabs my arm and she says, Gary, we have to leave. And I was like, okay, all right. I follow her out to the car. We get to the car. Before she can even start the car up, I say, well, what happened? Why are we leaving? And she said, well, we've been excommunicated. We've been kicked out of the church. They don't want us here anymore. The pastor heard that I had been concerned about the whole gathering guns and ammunition. You know, because the Bible says that if any man hunger, let him eat, not shoot him with a goddamn bazooka in the face. <laughs> And I sat there and I was like, just shocked. I was like, I've lost everybody that I know in this instant. They had cut us off from our family, cut us off from all of our friends. These were the only people I knew and I lost them right there. But the thing is, I didn't give a shit. <laughs> Yeah, because I didn't have to tell them about my fucking dick. <laughs> and that's the thing, guys. I don't know if it was God, but something spared me that day. <laughs> something did. And my apocalypse never happened. And the apocalypse never happened. And the funny thing is, I was so scared to talk about my dick in front of people, and here I am talking about my dick in front of people. So, thank you guys. Good night.
That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Sarah Bareilles behind me now, and we just heard from comedian Gary Fletcher, who you can find at GaryIsYou.com. And now, just one more word from our producer, JC, about ModCloth.com. ModCloth is your go-to spot for fashion that's as unique as you are. They feature a broad range of styles, from the understated to the adventurous, the classic to the contemporary, the retro to the right now. At ModCloth, you'll find anything but ordinary dresses, tops, bottoms, shoes, bridal styles, outerwear, and home decor. Use their free Mod Stylist service for dedicated one-on-one sizing and fit tips and personalized styling support. Go to M-O-D-C-L-O-T-H dot com, that's modcloth.com, and enter promo code RISK at checkout to get $20 off an order of $100 or more. Make every day extraordinary with ModCloth. Yes, indeedy. And now I'm going to read the places that the RISK Live show is happening next on October 15th. We're back in Los Angeles at the Bootleg Theater for our Eek show. That's all Halloween types of stories, scary stories. On October 26, we're back in Brooklyn at the Bell House. Same thing. That'll be our scary story show. On November 11th, we're in New Orleans, and we're still taking pitches for that one. The theme is Legends. On November 12th, we're in Baltimore. The theme is Wounded. Still taking pitches for that one as well. November 18th, we're in Chicago, Illinois. The theme is Frenzy. That's a part of Chicago Podcast Festival. Still taking pitches for that one. Just remember, you can always pitch us at the submissions page at risk-show.com. And for anything you want to know about learning how to tell stories or maybe procuring a corporate workshop for your staff because storytelling in business is essential, just go to thestorystudio.org. We have one-on-one sessions that are available over Skype. We have our video courses that you can take in your own time. And, of course, we have our in-person workshops. That's all at thestorystudio.org. Folks, today is the day. 
take a risk. Well, the clock is ticking towards the new millennium. There's just a million minutes to the year 2000. Not long to fix every single computer system in the country, and it's not just the obvious that will be affected. You decide perhaps food is the answer. Nothing like a nice bacon sandwich to banish early morning blues. Microwave has other ideas. Its date chip is malfunctioning. For several years, we've been warned. Chips are embedded in the most unexpected places. Many things we take for granted will simply not work. 